Good afternoon, church. Warm welcome to everybody here today on this fine, glorious day. Um, this is the time in the service where we uh, we remember Jesus. Um, it seems strange to say that because every day we should be remembering Jesus. But uh, this particular time in the service where we are uh, within the community of the church, uh, there is something special. Uh, something special about uh, partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine together. Uh, to remember Jesus together as a body. I want to start off with a story. Uh, it's a story and it's written on a tombstone in North Wales. And it reads, In the 13th century, Llewellyn, Prince of North Wales, had a palace at Bethgelet. One day he went hunting without Gellet, the faithful hound, who was unaccountably absent. On Llewellyn's return, the truant, stained and smeared with blood, joyfully sprang to his master. The prince, alarmed, hastened to find his son and saw the infant's cot empty the bedclothes and floor covered with blood. The frantic father plunged his sword into the, hound's high, into the hound's side, thinking it had killed his ear. The dog's dying yell was answered by a child's cry. Llewellyn searched and discovered his boy unharmed, but nearby lay the body of a mighty wolf which Gallant had slain. The prince, filled with remorse, is said never to have smiled again. He buried Gellert at this spot. It's, it's an interesting place because it's just in the middle of a field, this stone. Um, I think there's a bit of a sculpture there now. And, and, the, fame, and the place is really only famous for this uh, myth. Um, I don't know whether it was true or not, or not but... The one thing that struck me about this story is I think we can all pass judgment on someone without knowing the full story. Uh, and it can lead to uh, awful consequences. Many times it results in sort of bitterness. And certainly it makes forgiveness extremely hard for the other person. And when we see that person we are reminded of that judgment that we made. Jesus was judged, yet yeah, he didn't do any wrong. But it cost him his life. There was no bitterness, but he had sorrow for us. Instead of anger, there was forgiveness. So when I see the cross, I don't see hatred but I feel forgiveness. We all make errors in life. Bad things are remembered over the good things we do. But unlike people, Jesus had the ability to forgive. Not just one person, but everyone. Each and every one of us here today. He forgave the paralytic lowered on a mat through the roof. In Matthew 9, verses 2 to 8... He forgave the woman caught in adultery. In John 8, 3 to 11. He forgave the woman who anointed his feet with oil. In Luke 7, 47 to 50. He forgave Peter for denying he knew Jesus. 
in John 18, 25-27. He forgave the criminal on the cross next to him in Luke 23, 39-43. He forgave the people who crucified him. And just as he forgave all those people, he also <coughs> forgives you and he forgives me. Why? Because Jesus dying on the cross was the only way that we could be reunited with God. To forgive me for all the mistakes. So I can be cleansed. We can be cleansed. Both now and forevermore. In Romans 5.25 it states that Christ was delivered over to death for our sins. And was raised to life for our justification. We give Christ our sins, all those mistakes we make in life, and he gives us his forgiveness. That is an incredible thing. That forgiveness that it cover, covers over everything. It's not a partial forgiveness. It's not a forgiveness that sort of, well, I only forgive you if you do this or that. It is complete. There is nothing we can do to earn this. Only through Christ can we receive God's forgiveness. Let us remember what Christ has given us as we take the bread and the wine. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving us your Son. Your Son who whose own, only real sort of mission on earth was to die on the cross, Lord. I don't know whether he knew he had to die on a cross, but Lord, he knew he had to die in order that we could find you again. We can be brought close to you. We thank you, Lord, for that, that body that was broken for us, that was whipped, that was tortured, so that we can know you right now. We pray this as the bread goes around. Amen. pray for the fruit of the vine as it goes around. Father, thank you for your incredible mercy on us, that you should sort of grant us your son uh, to have his blood spilled so that we can come before you right now. We remember your son as the vine, the fruit of the vine goes around and we ask that you Bring, bring into our hearts, Lord, uh, the true meaning of being a disciple, a disciple of your Son. Thank you, Father, for these times. We praise you in your Son's name. Amen.
He's coming to uh, to preach to us today. Looking forward, Ricky. Please let's stand and uh, we'll sing this song. Um, just, well, a verse and a chorus, maybe. Soon and very soon. Just to get him uh, ready. Soon and very soon. Soon. 
said, we are going to see the king. I said, soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Soon and very soon, soon we are going to see the king. We'll be singing high. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the king. No more crying start the flowers ladies please take plenty of flowers otherwise they'll come back to us and I haven't got enough vases in our house for all these flowers so please take a handful of daffodils and take them with you anybody take them because they'll, they'll only again coming back up uh, into our home okay before I start the sermon the sermon today is a carry on from uh, in the scriptures from when Mulligan finished off we're getting back to a bit of a uh, back to the sequence there so it's just a continuation of that um, and I haven't got anything to flip out into the audience by the way into the crowd today so you are safe and it was an excellent sermon last week by the way I have to say that it was a brilliant sermon last week um, before I start this I'm going to ask you two questions and I think you should write these I think you should write these down first okay um, it's your relationship to, to God I, I want to know first of all the first question I want to ask you have you got religion or have you got relationship? Okay? Have you got religion or have you got relationship? And my question, my second question would be then, are you sitting here today because you've got religion or are you sitting here today because you've got relationship? So I'll leave that thought with you as we come into the sermon. Okay. Luke chapter 5 verse 27 to 39 is where I'm going to be coming from. And it is a textual sermon. A textual sermon means I am going to preach the text 
And I'm going to tell you what the text states and what it means. So instead of me giving stories about stuff in scripture, I'm going to stick to the text and give you that sermon there. And I've got much to say. In fact, I wrote this sermon and I've halved this sermon. Literally halved this sermon. So you'd be glad about that, won't you? Okay. I've halved the sermon. But there are three sermons you could preach from this text. There are three sermons you could easily do. But you're only going to get one. Okay. And I want to cover them today because it's a very, very important portion of scripture. So let me let us read from Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 39. Okay? And by the way, I will mention this many times, but they are linked. They are linked. Verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in the house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick I have come to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance. Verse 33. Then they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you cannot make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it into an old garment, otherwise the new will be torn, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new wine, but says the old is good. The title of the sermon today is The Gospel. This is the title of my sermon called The Gospel. And I'm going to come mainly from verses 33 to 39, but we're going to touch on 27 to 32, hence I've shortened it down. Okay. I want you to understand this church. It is critical. It has far-reaching implications. The Gospel of Jesus Christ... The gospel of God, as Paul calls it. The gospel of grace, the message of forgiveness through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel which we know and which we believe in is unique. And I mean that in the purest sense of the word. When I say the gospel is unique, I mean to say that it is incompatible with any other religious belief system. The gospel stands totally on its own. It mixes with no other religion. It accommodates no other religion. In fact, it replaces all other religions. Now, we know there is one God. There is one authoritative book, the Bible. There is one Redeemer of souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one gospel, the gospel of grace and faith. Being a Christian is to the exclusion of all other religious systems. 
Or you're not a Christian because all other religious systems are systems of works. To one degree or another. Ritual. Ceremony. Or human works earning favour with God. We are here again, church, defending the purity of our gospel. The passage before us, I've read, is very, very important. And it's focused on this very subject. The uniqueness of our gospel. But we're going to find out that Jesus didn't come to add, to alter, and to blend with any other religious system. He came to bring the gospel which replaces all other systems. Now this becomes very clear in the passages. And it points us into the direction of understanding why there was so much conflict. And it was ongoing conflict between the religious leaders of Judaism and Jesus. Which ultimately led them to get the Romans to execute him. The hostility continued to escalate to fever pitch until they managed to incite a whole crowd to scream for his blood and call for his execution. And the hostility was based upon the fact that Jesus came with the gospel that totally replaced the religion of Judaism. That has to be understood. Now we've already had plenty of indication that the hostility has already begun. I said in chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus called a man called Levi to himself. We also know him as Matthew. We know him as Matthew, as the, the writer of the first gospel. He called a man named Levi to himself. Do you know what? He forgave his sins. He saved him. He made him a disciple. And then Matthew puts on a feast, a celebration at his house, because he was so excited about his salvation. He was so excited that had he been called a disciple of Jesus. So he called all his friends together. Well, who are his friends? Well, his friends are all the social riffraff, aren't they? He was the lowest level of society. He was a tax collector. <laughs> yeah. He was more hated than anyone else in the Jewish society because he worked for the Roman government. He was an extortioner. He was a crook. He was robbing his own people to pay a foreign Gentile oppressor to get rich at the expense of his own people. And so tax collectors were what? They were scum. The only people they could associate with were the enforcers, the thugs, the prostitutes and all sorts of criminals. That's all they could mix with. Matthew was happy about his conversion. He was elated about his conversion, about being forgiven, being called a disciple of Jesus Christ. So he calls his party. He invited his friends in verse 29. He says a great crowd of tax collectors and other people. The other gospel tells us other sinners. That's what they say. Just the people that I have named to you. The outcasts, the despicable the despised of society. They were all there at that dinner. And in verse 30, the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at the disciples of Jesus, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and sinners? And here we find another indication of the terrible breach 
between Jesus and the religious leaders. The religious, the religious leaders sorry, were self-righteous. Their religious leaders had extern- that, 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 that external parade, shall we say, of their supposed righteousness. And one of the things they did was they disassociated themselves from all other people that they deemed unclean. They were righteous. They didn't sort themselves by going into a Gentile house or hanging around with tax gatherers, prostitutes, thugs and criminals. They didn't do that sort of thing. And Jesus associated with all these people. In fact, he gained the title, did he not? The friend of sinners and tax gatherers. Sorry, The friend of drunkards. Because those are the people that Jesus went to. And when the question was asked, Jesus answered in verse 31. It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. He says, well, you know what? You're well, you don't need a doctor. These people are sick and they know they are sick. They are sinful and they know they're sinful and they have called for the spiritual physician. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's saying you are righteous. Your self-styled righteousness won't save you. It's the wrong righteousness. It's the righteousness of your own self-invention. And I cannot help you. But I have come to sinners, the poor, the prisoners, the blind and the oppressed. He referred to from Isaiah chapter 61 earlier in his message in the synagogue in Nazareth. So we already know there's a huge gulf between the religion of Judaism concerned with staying away from sinners and the gospel of Jesus Christ concerned with being with sinners. The religion of Judaism concerned with self-style righteousness. The gospel of Jesus Christ with the heart righteousness. The religion of Judaism concerned about what men think. And the gospel of Jesus Christ concerned about what God thinks. And the religion of Judaism concerned only with the outside. But the gospel concerned with the inside. Huge gulf exists and it's very natural then to transition into the passage that I just read to you. Because in this passage Jesus makes it very clear that in fact the gospel is incompatible with Judaism. That's what these Pharisees and scribes are seeing. That looks to them to be kind of this religious behaviour. It's in the very opposite to their religion. They think their religion is true and what Jesus is doing is not right. Jesus says he speaks from God. Jesus proves he is God because he healed the paralytic man and forgave a sin. Only two things that God can do. So here is God and what is God doing? God is calling the riffraff, the scum, the wretched, the miserable people as his disciples. And God in human flesh. If in fact Jesus is God, this one who supposedly comes from God, this one who represents God, this one who claims to be God, is in direct opposition to the religion of Judaism. What they're wondering is why doesn't he pay attention to our traditions? And why is he so concerned about the heart? And why doesn't he associate with us? 
the scribes and Pharisees, instead of this scum, the tax collectors and prostitutes. Why does he do that? They are shocked at his breach of his so-called religious etiquette and religious tradition. And so it's right on the heels of their shock over the whole incident with Matthew and the riffraff in Matthew's house and Jesus' association with them. It's right on the heels of that that Luke follows up with this conversation between Jesus and these people, starting in 33. And by the way, Matthew and Mark record the same scene in the same sequence, which leads me to believe that these are sequential events. If the celebration that Matthew held took place all day long, this may have happened straight after. If it took place all day long and all night long, this may have happened the next day. But I think they're very close in time. That is perhaps why they were linked, so that they occurred at the same time. And another reason I believe this is, is because in verse 33 you read, it says, and they said to him. And if you're leaping somewhere else in time, you need to identify who they are. But if you're following immediately in sequence, they take you back to the Pharisees and the scribes who we were talking to the disciples in the prior incident. That's why I said these two sections are linked. So perhaps later that day, in the evening, or perhaps the next day, this comes into sequence. And it provides a perfect opportunity for Jesus to demonstrate our glorious gospel. Conflict. This is actually the third conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees in this chapter. The first conflict came with him over the hearing of the paralysed man earlier in the chapter. The second conflict comes in the house of Matthew or outside when the disciples come out and they are questioned by the Pharisees. Here is the third conflict and the stakes are raised every single time. In the house where the paralytic was healed, there's no real direct confrontation of the Pharisees. But there is at the time of the feast of Matthew. Now as we look at the passages from 33 to 39, I'd want to flow basically through three elements. And you might want to write these down. There are three simple elements. The inquisition or the inquiry The question that's asked. Two, and the interpretation. How Jesus interprets the behaviour in light of the question that's asked to him. And then we'll look at three, the illustrations. So first of all, we're going to look at the Inquisition. Verse 33, and it says, And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees, or those of the Pharisees, also do the same. But yours eat and drink. Now what they're doing is pointing out a very obvious breach of the religion of Judaism. The religion of Judaism called for prayers and fasting. We're not talking about voluntary prayers here. We're not talking about voluntary fasting. They had prescribed prayers. They had prescribed fastings. 
They had a routine, a daily routine of ritual prayers that were prayed at certain hours during the day. Still do it today. And I'm not going to go into all the entire pattern of prayer because we were here too long. This is the bit I cut. Although I will comment a bit on fasting. But there were certain hours of the day when they stopped everything. They went into a public place and they routinely went through their prayer list. They did it in the fashion to demonstrate their supposed spirituality before men. These were required routine ritual prayers which were either read or they recited for memorisation. They were in fact heartless. They also had fasts. In fact, it was part of the pharisaical system to fast, listen to me, to fast every Monday and to fast every Thursday of every single week. You remember, we're going to probably whoever to preach that in Luke 18, the Pharisees went into the temple to pray and he was saying, I thank you, O God, that I'm not like this lousy tax collector. I fast twice a week. That's what they said. And he was telling God how righteous he was because he fasts twice a week. Monday was a fast day. Thursday was a fast day. And it may well be that Matthew's party was on a Monday or it may be on a Thursday. They're saying, you're doing eating and drinking when all the rest of us are fasting. What in the world don't you understand about our tradition, Jesus? We're fasting. Well, which of course, you see, they, they, kind of, they kind of said that their religion was the best religion. It was the true religion of God. Don't all religions do that? We are the true religion of God. Now just look at verse 33. It says, and they said to him. That shouldn't pose any questions to anybody here. But it does, because we don't know who they are unless we look back a little bit. Luke seems to use they to take us back to the Pharisees and scribes, as I said. They are the group in verse 30 that had just encountered disciples, and they, no doubt, refers to them. So Luke poses the question from the Pharisees and the scribes, and they say, all the disciples of John fast and pray, and our disciples also do the same, but yours eat and drink. So the Pharisees and the scribes appear as the antagonists in the prior passage and they relate to those prior references to them. That's who they are. However, Matthew chapter 9 verse 14 says, The disciples of John came to him saying, Well, you might say, hold on, I'm totally confused now. Who is it? Is it the scribes and the Pharisees that come in? Or is it the disciples of John? Is there a contradiction in scripture? Because one says one and one says another. No, Mark records the same incident. Chapter 2 verse 18 says, And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, This is very typical of what we call the synoptic gospel accounts. Luke emphasises the Pharisees posing the question. Matthew emphasises the disciples of John posing the question. And Mark says they both pose the question. Very simply, church, the disciples of John were associated with the Pharisees and the scribes. That might shock you. They were. They were hanging out together. They were committed to the same patterns of prayers and fasting. 
They came together and they asked the question together. Now this is very interesting. Both groups obviously observed these fasts and prayers. It says the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees do the same. They have a pattern. They have a routine. And they keep it. And your disciples ignore it. That's what they said to Jesus in the text. This is an outrage, Jesus. Don't you understand? This is our religion. This is the true religion of God. That's what they believe. And they're telling him, you are in violation of it. How are we supposed to accept you as the spokesman of God? As the one prophet of God. As the one who is the Messiah of God. As the one who is God incarnate. The healer of diseases. The forgiver of sins. How are we supposed to accept you. When you don't observe our religion. Now I need to explain something to you. About the disciples of John. Because when you think of the disciples of John. As we all do. We think of the good guys. Do we not? Yeah. We all think of the good guys. So what are these good guys doing with these bad guys, all these legalistics? What are they doing with them? It's not strange to understand why they mingle together, and I'll tell you why it's not strange. John the prophet, you remember, came in the third chapter of Luke. He came into the region of the Jordan, and he was preaching repentance, was he not? The Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the kingdom's coming... You better get ready when the king comes because he's going to set up his kingdom and you better repent. It's what John was saying. If you don't repent, the wrath of God's going to come upon you. Do you remember that? We've had that. It's a very strong message. And it tells us in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 3 and going down to verse 15, that everybody in the Jordan area was coming there. And one of the other writers says, all Judea of John, uh, oh, sorry, all of the Judea was going to John. So literally, thousands, if not tens of thousands of people were going to John. They were listening to John preaching repentance and getting ready for the Messiah. Come repent and be forgiven and get your heart ready for the Messiah, John was saying. And thousands, and John, you know what? John had thousands of disciples. There was a day, you remember, in John's ministry, not all these people would have been there that day when Jesus showed up. And that was the day that John points to Jesus and he says to him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John said. And John wanted his disciples then to move their allegiance, where from? From him. To Jesus. And in John chapter 3, verse 28 to 30, John said, He must increase and I must decrease. I've got to fade away and you've got to move over. You've got to move towards the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, you remember, was baptized by John. And you remember the Father said, This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. We all remember that. The Spirit descended upon him. And it was clearly recognisable to John that he was the Messiah. And so John wanted to transition his people to the one that had to increase, Christ. But not all of John's followers were there that day. And not all of his followers are convinced that Jesus was actually the Messiah. Not all of the disciples of John followed Jesus, but I'll tell you what many of them did. 
because we meet them in this context. They made a commitment at the river. They confessed their sin. They asked for forgiveness. They wanted to be acceptable to the Messiah when he came to set up his kingdom because they wanted to get into the kingdom. So they cranked up their religious involvement a few notches. How are you going to do that in Judaism? How are you going to crank it up? You'd start hanging around with who? You'd start hanging around with the Pharisees and the scribes. You would say, hey, we had a dedication down by the river. I recommitted my life to my religion and to God. So where is the highest level of religion? Where do we need? We've got to get there. Who's doing it? Oh, do you know, let's hang around with them guys. Yeah? Let's do the fast that they ascribe to. Let's do the almsgiving they go to. Let's pray the prayers they ascribe to. And let's really be serious because when that Messiah turns up, do you know what I know? We want to tell him that our repentance was real down by the river. So they don't make the transition to Jesus. But all of a sudden they start hanging around with these people. They perceive in their religious system are at the highest level. Now at this time, isn't it interesting enough that John's put in prison? At the same time, John's put in prison. He's not around to help his disciples. He's not around to be preaching everywhere to say to his his disciples, he's the Christ, go and follow him. Go and follow him. Because John is in prison and he's going to lose his head. So for all intents and purposes, John's voice is what? It's stilled. You can't hear John's voice. So these disciples of John wanting to be very, very faithful to their dedication that they made at their baptism with John wind up associating with the scribes and Pharisees. They blend into the religion of the day. They do what would be the highest level of religious devotion. And by the way, long, long after this, if we went all the way to the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, don't go there. Can you have time to go there? I'll cut this bit out as well. Okay. If we go to the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, the first seven verses, we run into the disciples of John who had never heard of Jesus. They'd never heard of him. That's years and years later. Disciples of John never heard of Jesus. There was no media. There was no radio. There was no paper. If you didn't hear about Jesus or you met Jesus and you were somewhere else, you hadn't got a clue that he even existed. So there were the disciples of John way into the 19th chapter of the book of Acts. And you remember they were asked if they knew Christ and they said this, we have never so much heard of Christ. Never heard of him. And they gave him the gospel. Do you remember? They believed, they repented in Christ, they were baptised and they received the Holy Spirit. So there were these people associating with John who in the desire to be so kind of fastidious about their religion associated with the Pharisees. So they came as a group. They came together. A mingled group and they asked the question to Jesus. The disciples of John, here they fast and offer their prayers and the disciples of John say, yeah, that's what we do. We do that. And the disciples of the Pharisees, they do the same. But yours... Eat and drink. 
And you're having a party. Even worse, this may have been a Monday or a Thursday. Now just to make sure you understand what I'm talking about, this was their own human invention. Do you know how many fasts there are in the Bible? Commanded by God. How many fasts commanded by God? Anybody know? Zero. You're exempt on it, not you, David. How many? Zero. There is one. There is only one fast commanded in the entire Old Testament. And it's called Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. There's only one fasted by, one commanded by God. Leviticus chapter 16 verse 29 and 31. Commands people, and it uses this phrase, humble your souls, or in the new King James, afflict your souls from the Hebrew word anai, A-N-A-H, which is commonly used to refrain from food. That's what it is. What was the Day of Atonement? It was a, a day when you took a long, hard look at what? Your sin. That's what you did. I'm not going to go there either. I'll cut that bit out. They had one day fasts. There were three day fasts. They had seven day fasts. Daniel chapter 10 verse 2 and 3. There was a three week fast. There are several other times in the Old Testament when you have 40 day fasts. Uh, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy chapter 9, and I think there's one in Kings, uh, 1 Kings 19. And even our Lord Jesus fasted for 40 days in that tremendous conflict over his soul with Satan. Remember that, yeah. But there is only one required. But what had happened in Judaism was they decided that fasting looked spiritual. So they invented fasts that had nothing to do with their hearts because their hearts were rotten. The hearts were stone, and in the language of Ezekiel, I mean, on the outside they were white, and on the inside they were full of dead men's bones. And Jesus said they were hypocrites. They were despicable to God. They fasted only to be seen by who? By men. And they determined that every Monday and every Thursday would be a fast day. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, when he preached that sermon on the mount, he lit a bomb. He really lit a bomb in that message because he spoke to those religious leaders, those religious Jews, and he said, when you give alms, don't sound a trumpet before you. When we take the collection up next Sunday, should we blow the trumpet every time somebody puts them in the pot? Shall we do that? Do you know what I'm giving? I'm putting some money in, blow the trumpet. I want to be seen by men. Can you imagine? So that's what they did. The hypocrites do it in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be honoured by men. Well, do you know what? They've got their reward. You can say, what's their reward? They're honoured by men. That's all. They're honoured by men. Then in verse 5 he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. They do it today by the wall. It's all that look of appearing to be spiritual. Do you remember what I said at the beginning? Religion or relationship? The Pharisees and their followers were engaged in nothing more than hypocrisy. And the disciples of John the Baptist, probably well-intentioned, I'll give you that, 
Well, do you know what? This is the high standard of our religion. So do you know what? We're going to get a bit of this. That's what they were saying. And so they're going through all of this. And here is Jesus and his disciples. And do you know what? what is, he's at a party. With the wretched people that none of these folks would ever associate with. And that yours eat and drink. Why are you all so happy? Is their underlying thought. Which leads me to the second point, the interpretation. What's Jesus going to say? How is he going to interpret that? Verse 34 said, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? That is absolutely simple. Attendance are the best friends who plan the wedding. And Jesus says, look, you don't fast at a wedding, do you? A wedding is a celebration. And when the bridegroom is there, you celebrate. Weddings normally last about seven days. So you're very lucky over here. Are we? Seven days. Imagine that. Seven days. Fasting would be out of place, wouldn't it, for a wedding? I suppose the father of the bride could say. Because your dad could say, I suppose, couldn't he? Well, I'm so upset my daughter is marrying that guy. There's going to be no cake. There'll be no refreshments. There'll be no punch. There'll be no food. Do you know why? Because we're fasting. He could say that. Pretty bizarre, but he could say it. Matthew says you don't mourn at a fast. Linking the two, which should be linked. Fasting was linked with sorrowful prayer. And it was on the day of atonement, sorrow over sin. And Mark says as long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. There were ancient rabbinical rules forbidding people to fast at a wedding. Rejoice with those who rejoice. There is a time, says Ecclesiastes, to weep and a time to laugh. Fasting has its appropriate time, time for when you... I mean, we've all had, we've had a loss maybe in the family and you're broken half and you're grieving. Sometimes you don't want to eat. Kind of, you want to fast, you want to do, you want to pray. There are times for that. But Jesus says, you don't get it, do you? You do not get it. The bridegroom is here. And who's the bridegroom? It's Jesus, he's here. There's an old Jewish document called the Magilat Tanat, called the Scroll of Fasting. And it says, fasting is forbidden in all days devoted to happy times of celebration. And you know what? The rabbis knew it. The rabbis knew that document. These people, these Pharisees, scribes, disciples of John, they were completely out of touch with what was going on. And by the way, the Old Testament never refers to Messiah's bridegroom. It's not there. This is a New Testament term and it's here introduced. Later on, we know Paul builds on that, he's in epistles, and the book of Revelation builds on it further. Christ the bridegroom takes the bride into the great bridal city, the new Jerusalem. So this is the first introduction of the Messiah as the bridegroom. But the analogy is very clear. He's saying you've been waiting and you've been waiting as people do. Waiting for the bridegroom to come. And when he comes you inaugurate the celebration. But the bridegroom is here. You're out of touch with reality. It would be completely ridiculous for Jesus' disciples to fast and mourn when the Messiah was there, a long-awaited Messiah. And again, it just shows how completely out of touch they were with reality. It's particularly disturbing to me 
that John's disciples had not transferred their faith to Christ, to whom John appointed them. And I guess these guys were thinking, you know, Jesus is hanging around with these sinners. He's talking about forgiveness, but he's not doing the ritual stuff. This is just how far away from reality they were. That system of Judaism, totally bankrupt. Jesus, by the way, did agree that his disciples didn't fast. He didn't, however, agree that they didn't pray. They didn't pray the daily routine prayers of the scribes and Pharisees and disciples of John, but they did pray. Can you imagine what it was like for them? Just being there with the long-awaited Messiah, day after day. Can you imagine the exhilaration, the joy? What fulfilment? They were the Messiah, they'd been forgiven. They were the poor, the prisoners, the blind and the oppressed. They had been released. Joy of all joy. They were in the presence of the Messiah. They were seeing his power, hearing his teaching. Fasting would be absolutely ridiculous. And then Jesus adds in verse 35. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. That's an interesting statement. The days will come. There's going to be a time in the future and in that future time the wedding joy is going to end. Why? Because the bridegroom is going to be taken away. He's going to be snatched away from them. In the middle of the celebration, in the middle of this big celebration for the bridegroom, he's going to be snatched. The death of Christ. This is the first reference we have in here in Luke. Really about his death. There are times in this life when a fast is appropriate for sadness and sorrow. I've said that. But the bridegroom is always with us, church. He's taken up residence in our hearts. Here's what the Holy Spirit through Luke wants us to understand. Give me five more minutes because I need to finish this and you'll be glad I did. Verse 36 to 39. This is beautiful. This is graphic teaching. The illustrations. Jesus came to make a complete break with Judaism. A complete break with the old. And here he makes it crystal clear. In verse 36 he's telling them a parable. Parabola means a figurative example. It's a metaphor. It's an analogy. It's a story. It's a very broad word. He gives them three illustrations. Three accounts to reflect a fuller understanding of the point that our gospel is unique. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it into an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the, uh, and the piece from the new will not, uh, will not match the old. That's a simple point, isn't it? Not? Ladies, it's so simple, that is. If I can get that. Okay? If you had a new garment, you wouldn't tear a piece out of it because you'd just ruin the new garment, wouldn't you? And if you took the piece out and you sewed it into the old, and Matthew and Mark call it a non-shrunk piece, as soon as you wash it, usually the new piece shrinks, it rips the thread out that creates a hole all over again. And now you haven't been able to repair the old, and you've totally ruined the new. That's a simple, simple illustration. What's Jesus saying? You can't patch the gospel, church, into any religious system. You can't take a piece of the gospel and patch it in. You cannot do that. You can't teach a false gospel. You can't put the unshrunk new cloth into the old, worn, faded cloth. And if you do, basically Luke says, you know what? It ain't going to match anyway. 
Now listen to what I'm going to tell you. The old garment is not the Old Testament. Listen, that's not. It's not God's holy law, which is eternal, which the gospel fulfills. If you want to get a clear, definite definition terms, you need to read the letter of Galatians. And again, we haven't got time to go through that. But in verse 37 and 38, the word new is used seven times. See, our gospel's new. Not old, it's new. Verse 37, he gives another illustration. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst and the skins, and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Let me give you a very quick understanding of that. When they made wine, as we know, it's, it's ferment. Basically, that is a fermenting pro- process. And obviously you make wine. You, get, you pick the wine, you tread the grapes, you crush them, you put them into vats, and they will pour them into goat skins. Now, I was going to preach on this a bit more, but I won't. Now, people think they take the skin out of the animal. The skin stays in the animals. I have to tell you this. They don't take it. Well, I'm going into the detail, because I'll, I'll cut that out as well. But I'll cut that out as well. Now, what happens is, as the wine ferments, when something ferments, what happens? Do you know what? When you've had a bit of too much to eat, you expand. Gas is released. Expands and it expands. It was critical to use new wineskins. New wineskins because they were supple. They were soft. And they would expand with the fermentation process. And all the dregs went to the bottom and they would expand. Then the wine would be poured into another skin. And it would still continue the same process. Fermentation. The dregs fall into the bottom. It would go from skin to skin to skin until it was pure. No dregs, sour vinegar left at the bottom. But particularly the new wine had to be first put into the new skin to allow the expansion. What is he saying? If you take this new wine and put it into old, crackled, brittle, stiff wine skins, the expansion process will burst the skins and everything will be ruined. That is a dramatic difference in the gospel church. The gospel's new wine. It cannot be mixed with the old. It cannot be contained by the old or put into the old. You take the gospel and you put it into any works righteousness system and you make the gospel void. It's an old skin. It will crack and you will lose the gospel. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 4, Paul put it this way. You have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. It's not a compatible. Grace is not compatible with any work system. So church, don't you think, do you think if you can add, you think you can add Jesus to your religion? I'm sorry, you can't do it. If you believe the gospel, it is the gospel that replaces your religion. Verse 39, no one after drinking old wine wishes for new. Or he says the old is good enough. That again is another simple example. Take somebody who's been drinking the same kind of wine for years and years and years. And you come along and say, you know, I've got a brand new, got a brand new vintage here. No, 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 do you know, I'll stick with the old. It's my old favourite. I like my old favourite. I don't want to try anything new. Well, you know what? It's got a new promise, this new wine. It's a lovely taste. Do you know, it's a new technique. It's a new flavour. Try it. No, no, I'm happy with my old wine. Thank you very much. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he says, you've been drinking that old wine of Judaism so long, you have absolutely no interest in the gospel. And isn't that true? 
People who have been in religions for a long time are very comfortable. They cultivate their taste for that religion. They cultivate their taste for that tradition, that experience. And Judaism had become mellowed and settled by centuries of experience and mounting, increasing tradition. Until it was so much part of the fabric of their life, they couldn't even see themselves in any other way. There were Pharisees and scribes to the death. They were self-satisfied. They had grown comfortable with their heresy. Like all men who have been drinking a certain wine all their life, they were not interested in, in a new one, no matter what he may have promised by the way of delight or pleasure. And I say to you, what Jesus was saying is that those who have cultivated deep love for that kind of religious tradition, I'm sorry, they've got no interest in the gospel, none at all. And we found that, I'm sure you've spoken to people who are quite happy where I am. I like my tradition, quite happy. The Judaism of Jesus' time was very satisfying old wine and they wanted nothing to do with the new. And eventually they saw to it that Jesus Christ was crucified for it. How sad's that? But that's where sinners are today as well. There's no mixing church. For those who aren't willing to come out of their false religion to the gospel, there is no hope. There is no hope. They aren't about to sell everything to buy the treasure in the field. They aren't about to sell everything to buy the pearl of great price. They certainly aren't going to take the cup of Luke chapter 22 verse 20. The cup of the new covenant. So what do we do church? As we finish it off. What do we do? Do we tell them, do you know it's okay? We'll put the gospel into your tradition as a patch. We'll do that. Do we tell them it's okay and we'll dump some of the gospel into their old wineskins? Should we do that? Because we're scared to upset them? No, church. Church, to finish, and we'll have a prayer. We have to preach the gospel because the gospel stands alone. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this powerful passage and its immense implication. May there be no soul here who, having drunk for a long time the old, is saying, I'm not interested in the new. Lord, deliver souls from that tragic rejection. By your grace and mercy, may you shatter their confidence in false religion and bring them to the pure delight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.